Hi there, everybody. Sophie Aldred here, a.k.a. Ace from Doctor Who, and you are listening to the Sirens of Audio podcast. Okay, you ready? No. What a... F- <laughs> there you go. What a fascinating <laughs> <Sorry>. chat. <laughs> now, let me start again. Let me start again. There's a good blooper anyway. We'll put that on somewhere. <laughs> G'day audiophiles, this is the Sirens of Audio, the show that explores the universe of Doctor Who in the audio medium. My name's Dwayne. And my name is Philip. G'day Dwayne, g'day audiophiles. I'm very, very excited today, Philip. We're going to be speaking with one of the composers for Big Finish later in the show. Well, not too far into the show, actually. Uh, it, Rob Harvey is joining us. Yes, well, I've been enjoying Rob's music. I think I was mentioned to you just recently, I was listening to one of his scores, getting to a old story, where it's been out for a few months, but I haven't got to, and I, you know me, I don't listen, I don't look at the cast lists, I don't look at anything, but the music track came up, and I actually listened to the whole music track and thought, boy, I enjoyed that, and then I played it again, which I don't think I've ever done before, and then once I finished the story, I thought I'd better find out who this was, because I really enjoyed it, and it was Rob Harvey, I went, oh, that's a... A great blessing that was, because we're going to talk to him today. So I'm very excited to speak to him. Yes, that's coming up very soon. But you know what, Philip? Yeah, what's going to happen first, Wayne? Before we talk to Rob, we have to jump into that rabbit hole. Let's go! Me, me. <laughs> okay, Philip, so... Because we're on a sort of a sound design music theme for our episode, I wanted to talk to you about a movie that I recently saw. Well, two movies, really. And I'm not sure if you saw them. You were saying to me that you weren't going to be able to get to the cinema to see the Dalek uh, movies, the Peter Cushing films. But I got to see them in Hobart when I was down there a couple of weeks ago. And I was totally through i wasn't planning on going but i just happened to be in hobart where they were screening it if they were screening it up here where i am near launceston i definitely would have made plans to go but it just so happened i was in hobart so i thought well i'm here i may as well go and i'm so glad i did and the reason for that is because of the uh, the sound the sound has been uh, enhanced by mark Ayres, of course good old faithful mark Ayres has been doing it for decades now and it was it was thrilling not only to be able to see it on the big screen but but to be able to hear the sound of these movies better than I'd ever heard them before. So there's the question, Philip. Did you get to see them? Well, I am insanely jealous because unfortunately, no. I was away on holidays. I was up at Port Stephens with my family, enjoying the rain. <laughs> um, yes, for those for those of you who aren't in Australia, well, the East Coast, I think you've been okay in Tasmania. We have just had incessant rain for seven months now it is just basically raining the whole time so good to get away in the rain for holiday on the beach in the rain but never mind it was a good time anyway so yes unfortunately <laughs> um i missed the production i was really sad about that because i i those two movies i adore 
Um, certainly there was some, my fairly standard thing that I saw regularly because in Australian TV it was they were shown basically every six months um, and so every six months on a Sunday afternoon they'd appear as part of just the normal programming and they were the first Doctor Who I ever recorded on a tape deck. I um, got out my audio tape deck and recorded it off the TV in my bedroom so I had the audio for those two movies and I would have seen the movies long before I saw the TV shows, before the original Black and Whites. So to me, they were very much part of Doctor Who, the original. And yeah, to me, Peter Cush has always been one of the Doctors. It's funny you say that your recollections of seeing it on television. I don't remember ever seeing it on TV. But back in the day, in the 80s, when going to the video shop was all the rage, remember you had two sections, you had VHS and Beta. Well, my parents for some reason decided to go beta which meant the selection was less and i used to go and drool over this vhs copy of dalek's invasion earth earth 2150 and i never got to see that ever so i can't remember when the first time was that i saw them um no i i I simply cannot remember um i don't think it's that long ago maybe uh, maybe only in the last 20 years have i seen the the movies, maybe 25 years, I don't know. Well, but, actually, uh, it would be interesting. One, one of, just another little story, sideline on that, my cousin, Christopher Thompson, who we've actually had on the program, uh, who's done, you know, now working for different comic people over in the UK. I remember watching Invasion 2050, 2150, at his house. We'd gone over for his, to my aunt's house um, for lunch. I forget what we were doing. And he came and watched it with me. And that was his first Doctor Who. And that's, so I mean, I, I would have been, I don't know, 10 or 11. He would have been 5 or 6. And that was his first Doctor Who. And that was his introduction to the cultness and stupidity that is Doctor Who fans and all that it does to us. So, yeah, so that, that film is actually what, what we connected with as cousins. And both of us, I guess, our, our fandom and our love of Doctor Who was because of Sunday afternoon watching that film together. Yeah. And it's amazing the enhancements, all these re-releases, because I think it's Ultra HD and and uh, the audio has been enhanced. I wonder what technology is going to enable us to do in the future. Are we going to be able to get inside the movie and feel like we're... I mean, that's how they trailed uh, the Daleks, isn't it? Feel, you can feel their fire and feel that you're there. Uh, maybe one day technology will let us get inside the film itself. Who knows? So it was good to say, I didn't actually, you really enjoyed us. I did, I did, and particularly the sound side of things. Uh, well, I saw, I saw Mark Eyre's name at the, at the start there, because um, I think they had an announcement that this is an enhanced, uh, uh, a remastered version and had a few names on it, Mark's name jumped out at me. So yeah, I was really paying attention to uh, to all those little, all those little sounds that you don't usually get when you're when you're listening on your television, because even though I have a sound bar at home, I don't often turn the sound bar on. I should turn it on more, but, um, although one, one experience that I, that I did really enjoy is you remember how this is totally different to the, to the Doctor Who movies, but do you remember when knock, knock that episode came out and it yes. came out with, uh, and some kind of oral enhancement. So it was like, like it was in quad, I think in your headphones. So uh, I listened to that in headphones, and that was really, really cool. Did you do? You, did you do that? I, knock knock. No, I didn't do it, but I knew that you could, you could do it. 
And it's probably got the enhancement on the DVD. You can switch it on if you want to, with all the knocks coming all around you if you've got your headphones on. Very, very cool. So um, so, so thinking about uh, scores and, and music, of course, the Doctor Who Dalek films are, uh, are very... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Philip, help me. Help me. Orche- orchestral. After the music they, they are orchestral, but they've, they're, they're very unique. Uh, to to the yeah, love it. I love yes. it. Oh, particularly the second one. That that always reminds that that sort of theme always reminds me of Bernard Cribbins walking around in his Robo Man outfit through the through the Dalek saucer. Yes, and really I'm, cool. I'm not sure that music always matches the tone of what's going on on screen, but it's fantastic music anyway. Yeah, the second film it 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 has a lot of dramatic music in it, but there's also a lot of comedy as well, so it really blends comedy and action, um, unlike the TV series ever did. And uh, yeah, it's a really interesting, really interesting experience to see them in the cinema. It's very um, Avengerish in terms of the costumes and the color, and yes, um, it's, it's just so. I mean, I'd love to see on the big screen because I assume the color is just overwhelming. Because of the bright reds, the yellows, the because everything is just vibrant color in it. Yeah, particularly particularly that first film, the second one being more earth based. It probably wasn't as vibrant oh, okay. as the the Scaro based one. And uh, yeah, I always pre- seem to prefer the second one over the first one. Um, I, I I find myself getting a little bored. I think with the by the time it gets towards the end i don't know why because it's a lot shorter than the than the tv episodes but i always prefer the daleks on tv yes so do i actually i I think these the characterizations on the tv show work better than the movie but yeah the the, yeah but i I think i probably and it's got tristram carey's music which is always a winner for me yes That's, that's what that's what tips the scales for me in terms of dalek invasion of earth and the daleks on tv it's always the score that that always tips me over the edge. Yeah. Because I don't like the score on Dalek's Invasion of Earth anyway. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I just thought I'd raise that um, because we're on a musical and sound design sort of theme for this episode. So let's jump out of the rabbit hole. We'll throw in a trailer for something that Rob... uh, Let's throw in a trailer for The Lone Centurion, eh? So um, The Lone Centurion was... uh, Box Set 2 was released a couple of months ago. So I'll throw in a trailer for that. Uh, Rob worked on that, not only the set, the sound and music, but the theme. And we'll be back with him in just a moment. Who goes there? Tis I, friend, Sir Lancelot, covered in glory ah, and treasure. Open the gate! Ah. From Big Finish Productions, The Lone Centurion, Volume 2. <laughs> Hold the poultice on the wound. It will help combat the infection. There are other options we could try. Boy, while I admire the confidence in your medical knowledge, the fact that you believe it surpasses my own is beginning to grate. Word has reached me that a dangerous artifact has been smuggled into Camelot. What kind of object? An arcane weapon that is supposed to contain the power of a divine trickster. But advise the guards to be cautious. The box has a guardian. Some kind of magical defender? You are the centurion that guards the Pandorica. How many times? No, I'm not. And now you must decide. Which one will you pull to safety? 
and which one will be breathed upon by the evil dragon? I thought Camelot was meant to be at peace as long as Arthur was king. And yet, it appears Camelot is now at war. Big finish. We love stories. Right, uh, well, I, I better get going. Camelot needs me. One of the most important components for audio is the sound design and music, and we have one of the sound designers and musicians from Big Finish with us today, Rob Harvey. Hello. Hello, how are you doing? Very well. Uh, you were just telling us a, a moment ago that you're keeping yourself very busy at the moment uh, with uh, yeah. lots of audio work. I guess during the last couple of years, audio is, is a medium that more and more people are turning to? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, with lockdown and, and uh, working from home, I was in a really fortunate position to be able to sort of um, keep busy right through uh, right through the last few years, um, thanks to audio drama. Um, it's kind of a machine that, that hasn't stopped and it isn't, look, it isn't looking like it's going to stop anytime soon, honestly. Um, I really feel like audio dramas, particularly over the last few years, has um, really gone into the public eye um, and has become a bit more mainstream even. Um, you know, it's considered, it's got a kind of a bit more of a valid, validity than it had prior to this. Um, but yeah, no, I'm working on uh, a lot of interesting stuff at the moment. Um, uh, I work quite a lot with Scott Hancock um, and uh, currently we're working on uh, a Warmaster box set, um, the one coming out in December. Escape from uh, reality. Yeah, Escape from reality. Yeah, um, and we're also working on uh, a Dorian short film which is coming out in October. And I've also got my first Dorian vinyl release, in fact, my first vinyl release ever, actually, which is really exciting, coming out in a, around the same time. So, yeah, that's all, all very exciting and, and uh, a lot of interesting, you know, development in my music. And, uh, yeah, I'm very, very, very pleased with how things are going. Well, I want to talk to you about the vinyl. You've, my ears have pricked up with that because um, I... There, there is a difference, I think, in, in sound on vinyl as opposed to digital, so... Uh, I want to talk to you about that, but but before we do, I want to go back a little bit and get to know you a little bit. So, a lot of people who work with for Big Finish are Doctor Who fans. Are you one of those? Yeah, I mean, um, I think Doctor Who for me really first came into my life when Eccleston came onto the telly. You know, when I was when I was young growing up, Doc, there was no Doctor Who around. You know, I was a you know a, a kind of a Star Wars fan mainly. But yeah, you know, Thunderbirds as well, like things like all the Jerry Anderson stuff. Um, but no, Doctor Who really came came into my life with Eccleston, um, and carried on through things like Torchwood and Tenants Era and Doctor Who. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I, it brings this intense nostalgia for me when I see that that period in Doctor Who, which for me was one of my favourites. And uh, you know, having worked in a bunch of different eras of Doctor Who, it's still it's still my favourite. So after discovering the new series, you make us feel so old. Uh, thank you for that. <laughs> Sorry um, about that. <laughs> have you gone back to, to into the classic series, or are you still? They, have you covered that whole era now uh, of the classic series, yeah. or have you still got gaps in there that you need to that you need to catch up on? Definitely some gaps. I need to go back and watch Sylvester McCoy properly. That's 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 an era I really like as well. But no, I've, I've watched a lot of Peter Davison as well because obviously I worked on um, Fifth Doctor stories for Big Finish. Um, and I've watched quite a lot of Colin Baker and I've watched quite a lot of Tom Baker. Um, but yeah, no, I, it, 
it's 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 a completely different different land really to what what's happening today in modern Doctor Who, in my opinion. Particularly with the music, you know, um, and that's really where I'm listening. Uh, you know, old Doctor Who is essentially, you know, lots of stabs and synth, and they're really kind of treading ground that's never been trodden before back then and it's really interesting to go back and just look at Doctor Who in its sort of embryonic state before it really becomes what we know of today um, yeah so I mean I've watched a lot of I remember before the, the Mark art we did a we did a, uh, a series of stories with a new character a new companion called Mark when I had to do my do my research for that series I, I watched Earthshock uh, I watched a lot of Earthshock and I took a lot of my inspiration from that um, Particularly with this, you know, when it came to the sideman themes, there's a lot of a lot of a lot of the um, you know the rhythmic, yeah, the, the kind of rhythmic footprint of that for me kind of worked its way into things like Warzone and Conversion, um, and then Thin Time and, and the Mad Quake a little later on, um, and then which ended with uh, a really amazing box set, the um, Lost, Lost Resort. Yeah, I absolutely love that box set. It was it, when I first when I first listened to it, I just it took me it took me a few listens to really kind of understand it um but it particularly sort of caught my eye as a point where you know Adric's Adric's sort of his journey through the, the universe kind of comes to an end um and he gets a proper goodbye in that story so a, a, a heroic goodbye as well yeah exactly I think he really deserved it you know yeah particularly you know yeah, essentially, he's sacrificing himself at the end there, isn't it? Yeah, yep. it makes his his entire his entire arc, particularly from before, seem like you know, yeah, it, it's heroic and it makes you, it really makes you feel something for his character. You know, Matthew Waterhouse absolutely nailed awesome. it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Did yeah, you have music? Go I can't remember, but did you have music going over that dialogue between the Doctor and Adric right at the end? Was there a little bit of music yeah. going underneath that? So I've there got was. you to thank for making me cry as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it made me cry as well. I'm not gonna lie, uh, just hearing it. Yeah, but it, just there's that moment when Adric, when when Adric's voice catches, and I just thought, oh, <laughs> I've got to do that. Then. <laughs> so out come the strings, and, you know, um, and yeah, as all of the all of the characters there sort of fade away. Um, yeah, real, real, real tear joke that one. <laughs> It broke me totally. Do you get emotional as you put it together? Because I mean, you, you've got a lot, of, a lot of things you have to do. Like you're gathering all these different bits of dialogue. You're pasting them together. You're pacing them a bit in terms of you have a bit of control over the pacing of how the characters speak yeah. and where the pauses are. Do you actually? How emotional do you get when you listen to it for the first time? Well, you do get very, very in, entrenched in it. Um, and you know, often, you know, my job is really to tease out those emotions. So I have to often have to really listen a few times before I really understand the scene, um, and that that was a very you know, I'm working on one right now actually, which is just totally kicking me, you know. <laughs> um, and I will get it, and it will it will be done by the end of the week. But um, no, that Adric scene it took me a few goes, obviously, because it's, it's a, it was an important scene, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I do I do get very tied up in this um, in Doctor Who emotionally. And I have to really follow what's going on. And I have to feel what's going on in order to really put it on, on the page, honestly. Um, I'm sort of, yeah, I... Disassociation stuff for me just doesn't work. Like, I have to actually get involved with the, with the action and I have to really imagine it. I have to understand it in order to kind of, you know, put, 
push the queue in the right direction because queues can go in any direction really um and there's one that's right if you understand so you have to kind of be able to empathize with what's going on and understand in order to do the job properly essentially hmm. but i'm fairly certain other composers will probably disagree with me on that but i do get very very you know tied into the characters because the characters are just so amazing um and you, know, you, you kind of develop a real kinship with them and you feel kind of you know quite quite deeply when something goes wrong and yeah I'm, I'm curious to know how did you get into music in the first place yeah so uh it's kind of the only thing i've ever been good at you know at school i i flunked all my exams at school, um but i was always doing music all the time it's the only thing i've really ever been passionate about um and i remember yeah i remember having the meeting after sort of school finished after sixth form with you know the, the head of year saying you know school hasn't really hasn't really worked for you has it <laughs> so right no problem well what are you passionate about or well, music so i went off to study music for six or so years um uh, uh, part of a um it was only a uh, further education college near where i live however they had this degree course so i ended up just sticking around there for six years and it was it was really <laughs> it was a really a real sort of journey through music and um you know the, the context of it um you know have a lot you know have a lot to thank those people for because they're they gave a real breadth of knowledge and something I, I, I kind of want to get across is I, I sort of feel like music is, you know, it, understanding someone's music to me really feels like you have to sort of understand their culture a bit more. And I think definitely, you know, the, the kind of contextual side of music is very important. It's something I really want to bring forward in my work all the time. I'm always thinking about it. Um, so they gave me a, a really good background there. But, you know, music sort of started off for me listening to classic rock. I loved classic rock when I was a kid, like very young. Um, give, give me some I, of your favourites because I'm a, so, I'm a classic rock fan. I, I, you'll, we've, Philip, Philip will have to rein us in because I can talk uh, a lot about that. <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. So uh, I used to really love Judas Priest when I was a kid. Uh, Queen, Metallica, um, sort of. Uh, Led Zeppelin, Lina Skinner, uh, or not, not so much Lina Skinner, they're a bit too a bit too sort of South American for me, to be honest. Um, and then... As in Deep South. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and I had, I used to listen to Kerrang. I had, my dad was a, he had loads of Kerrang magazines and all that, and a few albums. And I used to just listen to those over and over again um, as a kid. Um, yeah. And then also prog rock, I'm a huge prog fan. Um, I love Russian. Ah, now you've done it. Now you've done it. I had a feeling. I had a feeling about you guys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, yeah, I, I can always tell from Um But no, yeah, Genesis, Rush, uh, King Crimson. Um, yes, huge fan of those. For me, their the kind of storybook approach to music was really something that resonated with my younger self, definitely, and still does, to be honest. Um, you know, huge fan of, uh, uh, you know, Essex Stage Left, Rush album, and, uh, you know, um, Genesis um, Selling England by the Pound was one of the first albums I heard when I was a kid uh, absolutely love the kind of English approach to uh, prog music because it, obviously it came from England it came from this country didn't it? It's a, yeah. I think it's a tragedy that when you say Genesis most people think of the 80s when to me that's not really Genesis at all 
<laughs> no, it's not, is it? Yeah, Peter Gabriel is absolutely a legend as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah, love his work. Absolutely love his work. Yeah, so what um, do you play? I play everything. Well, yeah, sorry, I play everything. I've I've got. Um, I started off playing the guitar, so as as you would. Um, I play lots of different instruments now. Uh, my main instrument now is really the piano, but um, I to give you a kind of rough idea. Um, yeah, I started off playing rock bands on the guitar. Uh, then I moved to bass and I played lots of different stuff on the bass, including like funk and Motown, but I actually ended up playing uh, swing band music on you know, on the upright um, bass. Double bass, uh, yep. Double bass, yeah. Um, but I I try and just pick up an instrument and, and give it a shot. So I'm also a brass player. I play the trombone and I also play I like cornet. Um, a bit of obviously trumpet as well, because they're basically the same instrument. Um, but um, at the moment, I'm actually getting into things like flutes um, woodwind. So um, uh, I'm particularly sort of Irish jigs on the penny whistle and things like that. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, uh, and lower range flutes and yeah, uh, uh, yeah. I th- try to think. I've, I also play the violin badly. So <laughs> you know, everybody very... plays the violin badly. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's whenever anyone asks me what instrument I play, play the you know, piano, guitar, bass flutes and the violin badly basically is the answer to that question and you sing no i, I well i i can I, I can sing backing vocals i don't think i've really got the kind of voice that you want to front a band with um or really lead anything um it's kind of, you know the wrong sort of you know a singer you think singing has to have quite a high register and i just don't have that high register so i try and stick clear of that stuff so once you finished studying music you continued playing in bands and things like that. Is that right? Yeah. So I played in I played in you know something like a hundred bands, something ridiculous like that. Oh wow! Um, yeah. It's just sometime. So I, if I sort of start from the beginning, it was first thing I played in was this kind of Latin art rock sort of band where I was I was the horn player, um, which was great. Uh, and then moving on, moving through, I picked up the bass. I started playing sort of prog on the bass a bit I played in a few bands like that I then started playing in jazz trios and things on the bass um because I was quite into jazz I'm quite into jazz um uh and then yeah, that see, see, jazz, jazz is my space yeah <laughs> prog and us jazz that's me yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah I, I, I'm a huge fan of, of uh of people like Thelonious Monk and Miles Davis and John Coltrane I really I really love John Coltrane's work um uh, and yeah, it's, and the jazz has obviously turned into a, a very interesting. I don't know if it, are you into sort of more, more old uh, sort of what you consider modern jazz, as in so bebop and. I, I do enjoy that. I mean, I used to direct jazz bands and yeah, take kids. I used to train jazz bands and things and swing bands, so that was my area. So, but yeah, I mean, all the kids like going to the modern stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well. It, Modern, yeah, modern jazz now has kind of turned into sort of a, uh, it's like a framework, isn't it? And in, you, you sort of an improvisational framework, which you can pretty well put anything to, you know. Um, I, I consider there's this one artist I really love. He's, um, he's Turkish. He plays the oud. His name is Darfa Youssef. Absolutely amazing player. And he plays in this sort of jazz jazz trio uh, with the oud. And he, but he also does the um, call to prayer 
over there. So he, he will sing as well. And it's just one of the most beautiful things you'll ever hear. And that, that's quite modern. It's got those electronic elements as well, which is something, an interesting place I think you know, jazz has gone recently. From leaving and playing in lots of bands, how did you end up working for Big Finish? So while I was, um, while I was studying, I uh, got in with a studio, a recording studio. Um, one thing led to another, and I ended up working at a studio in France, uh, down here in Tunbridge Wells, called um, Audio Sorcery, uh, which is a wonderful studio. We do sort of things like kids' parties uh, and um, uh, sort of singing experiences. But they also uh, have Big, fi big Finish as a client. In fact, that's where all Tom Baker's audios get recorded. After working there for quite a while, I eventually just started talking to Ken Bentley about um, about music and sound and everything. And he spotted that on my website, I said I was a sound designer. And he said, so did you th have you thought about auditioning for Big Finish? And I said, I hadn't, I I'll give it a go. So I did. And so, so is audio sorcery where you, where you learnt uh, the techniques behind sound design? Exactly, yeah. Sounds, yeah, I mean, it's the technical, the technical knowledge you get from working in a studio that help with the sound design. Um, but the sound design is, 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 uh, is very, it's not like anything I'd ever done before, honestly. Um, it was, it was, it was new for me, absolutely, when I started. Um, and it's, you know, it takes, you know, a lot of figuring out and, uh, and learning on the job, essentially. Would I be right in saying that it's the most time consuming process in creating the audios? Yeah, it is. Yeah, because you've got to do everything. So um, you've got to do for for a, for a script that's like eighty pages long. Um, you know, it'll take a day or so to do the dialogue edit. Um, so sometimes a day and a half depends on what editing actually needs to be done. Um, and then you've got the soundscape edit, which is like just putting the the background in and cutting the scenes to the right length and figuring out the pace. And then you do the spot effect, which is all of the effects written in the script. So you just go through and do all of that. And then you do what I call like the finesse edit where you put all the foley in um, and just make sure everything's working properly. And that can take sort of two, two and a half weeks to kind of get done per episode. Yeah, that, that absolutely is the most time consuming part. Um, do you mean 25 yeah. minute episode or hour episode? So it'll, I think 80 pages is about an hour. Yeah, right. that, that'll be about an hour, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's kind of the average script length for Big Finish anyway. Um, one of the nice things learning about sound design is understanding kind of the sonic landscape that you've got to work with. Um, and it's really actually um, inspired certain things in my music as well. Where does the music come through? Because the music then at the end? So it's yeah. two and a half weeks for this whole sound design and then music on top of that? Yeah, music can take about between sort of a week and two weeks, depending on the score. Um, if you're quite involved, two weeks is probably about right. Um, but if you're, if, you, if there's not as much actual, you know, if you're writing a synth score, it's definitely a lot quicker than writing uh, an orchestral score because you know orchestration takes a lot of time uh, to get right, and you have to you have to come up with an idea, put it on the piano, and then actually work out the idea with the orchestra. Whereas a synth score, often um, you're kind of using the synth as almost like a shorthand for um, for kind of the Doctor Who universe, essentially. Um, so, like the sound of a, like a Yamaha CS80, that's very Blade Runner, and, and you can sort of understand when, when I play that synth, you, you'll, you'll immediately think, "Oh yeah, Blade Runner." But then certain things like modular synths, which I don't really 
do that much of. You know, I've got a couple of modular synths, but um, that's very much more retro here. And you kind of write music that's more of a sort of soundscape than than maybe is sort of what I consider sort of music. Um, you know, music to me is, you know, melody, harmony, rhythm. Um, whereas I sometimes sort of, I sort of feel like the sound, the sound designing side of scoring, which is very pertinent, is it's different, and I would say maybe a little easier. Uh, so it takes less time. You're talking about soundscape, and uh, got me thinking about uh, a prog band again. Um, you may you may know uh, Porcupine Tree. Oh, absolutely, I love Porcupine Tree. So the, the, like Stephen Wilson's been solo for a while, but there is one ingredient in Porcupine Tree that. I, th I think of when I listen to your music and that's Richard Barbieri's keyboards he's he is not he is not the world's greatest keyboard soloist or a Rick Wakeman or anything like that but he has this ability to put this sort of contextual sound throughout the music that is completely him it's completely unique and it's his stamp um, and I hear that a lot in in your music too um, yeah I, I, so absolutely or Porcupine Tree, honestly, yeah. Particularly in albums like Fear of a Blank Planet or In, in Absentia, those two albums are amazing. Um, yeah. And Richard Barbieri's work is, 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 is just fantastic as well. And you know, Colin Edwin on bass as well. He's, he's really a really great bass player. And obviously Gavin Harrison on drums, who is, might be one of the best drummers of all time. Uh, you know. mm, I think he might be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh God, he's amazing, yeah. Um, actually saw King Crimson play a few years ago. Uh, we managed to catch him. It was Gavin Harrison on drums and there's uh, I can't remember the other drummers by now, but um, no, just watch. I just sat there looking at Gary Harrison. Uh, Pat, Pat Mastolotto would have been. Oh, yeah, Pat, yeah, Pat Mastolotto was playing. The other um, one? And they, they had three drummers, didn't they? Yeah, they had three. There was, yeah, there was that weird double trio thing they were doing with Thrack and and like and Broom and all that. But then they made it like a three drummers, two guitar players in Robert Fripp and who is the singer? It was, his name was Jackie Jack. Jackie Jack. Jackie Jack. Jack, Jack, Jack um, and then. Uh, I think I think it was Tony Levin. Yeah, it was Tony Levin on on stick and bass. Yeah, such a great, uh, such an amazing, <laughs> such an amazing experience that one. Yeah, yeah. for Progheads. I don't think they've come to Australia. It's it's one of the bands I would definitely travel uh, to at least to the mainland to see. But yeah, I'm not sure if they'll not sure if they'll get to Australia. It's a big, big number of guys to get over. Yeah, I know it is. Yeah, I mean, at, at the end of my studies, we actually did a King Crimson tribute band where we where oh, right. we started. We started from like in the court of the Crimson King and went right up through the double tree and the power, you know, three of a perfect pair and you know, frame by frame. We did we did probably the only live performance I've seen of construction of light that isn't King Crimson. And then we right. did um with that that's that's an insane piece of music. Um and then we did uh That's amazing how you got to straddle all those different eras because they're totally different sounds that you're playing with there. Yeah, particularly the early early sounds very rocky and you know, you have to kind of Play the guitar really hard. Is you know, Robert? I was kind of sort of trying to channel some Robert Fripp uh, with that band, and yeah, his his playing back then hadn't really sort of changed much, but he still had to be quite rocky. Um, but then it gets to the later stuff, which is just mind blowing. Um, yeah, absolutely huge fan of Robert Fripp as well. Yeah, he's worked yeah, with very Bowie. very very influential. We're on the same wavelength here, Rob. Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Very much it's so. We're at Prague. Yeah, something something I'd like to talk about is um, is uh, the Lone Centurion a little bit. Um, so, I when I was listening the first time for the Lone Centurion, um, there was something about Rory's character that just made me sort of think. Well, his dad's probably 
a Genesis fan. <laughs> you know, you can just sort of sense it, you know. Um, and it just made me think, well, what would, you know, what works? And the, the, the kind of distorted electric bass guitar um, was, for me, it was very Rush. Uh, I, I love that sort of that sort of sound. So I tried to work it into that score, um, so particularly some of those, you know, prog influences. Um, and you can hear it in the main theme, particularly, uh, which for me is quite a, quite quite an adventurous sort of sort of um, uh, kind of look through history, as it were, and the stories themselves. And to me, it really it really felt like prog when I was watching it the first time. When I was listening to it the first time. It felt like you know storybook sort of quests. Uh, it really you know made me feel maybe I could you know inject some of that into into this school and I, for me it worked really well in my in my opinion no <laughs> i i i love i love that theme i, I love the way it, it is fairy tale adventurous but when those electric guitars come in at the end it just it's oh, it's yeah. out, out of place but that's exactly what you want for this for represent the show the more because guitars it, the better i say exactly <laughs> but i just think it, it, it just makes me smile every time those electric guitars come in because they're just out of, out of place out of space um, but it works. It just fits in there so well. I was, I was actually saying to Dwayne before, um, I only got to listen in the last week to the, the, the Lost Centurion, the second box set. It's sort of, it'd been sitting there in my feed ready to go, but I just hadn't got to it. And um, I was driving up to Gosford to visit my mother, and you know, the music theme came on, the music track. And I, to be perfectly honest, often jump the music tracks to just to get back to the next storyline. But it kicked off, and I just heard a little bit of of a Christmas carol in the opening of the first theme, and it, it intrigued me. And I thought it's a just a tiny play. It's, it's, I think I think it's Week Three Kings Warrior Tar. Um, just is in there, and then the next one started, which is a bit of Jerusalem. And I start listening to the music tracks and realize you've pinched little bits of Christmas carols and hymns, and you've, that's what you've worked all your themes through in that that box set. And I got to the end of the music track, went back and played it again. And then I went through, because so my son was in the car and he was trying to play with his Switch and ignore, ignore me. And I made him put the Switch down and we talked through the Christmas carols and the different things as we went. And it's just this clever little hint. It is a, just brilliantly done. Um, Sorry, I assume, yeah. oh, oh, I'm assuming it's all in public domain so you won't get sued for it. But, but I just, it was just these little plays of themes, which if you, if you know the Christmas, it, yeah, I just, it was very impressive. Yeah, it, it was a... It, the story itself was a kind of Christmassy story. It was set yeah. in the of winter, wasn't it? But no, that that we, when we did the we did the Christmas version of the main theme as well. So much fun! You get the, <laughs> get the sleigh bells out and yeah, the, the, the choir and the organ. So so great. Um, yeah, it's such a rip off. Uh, I loved it. <laughs> I'm very glad to hear. Yeah, it's um yeah it's it's, it's lovely to hear um hear good feedback on my on music. Obviously, obviously it is. But you know, seeing that you understand. Uh, how, how in depth it was is, is really makes me feel really good. I mean, the, the, thing, the thing about the kind of a good sound design you don't notice, um, which is yeah, so, so, but that's it. I mean, if if you don't notice the sound design, I think the sound design has done a great job. But when you can actually start analyzing the music and actually start seeing, and, and one of the things that you do really well is you use your you know, leaf motifs throughout so that your characters do actually have little themes, and it, it, often it might be three or four notes, I've noticed. But you know a character's into the scene or is about to enter because of the notes. And one of the hardest things about audio is knowing who's in the scene at the moment. And I know you know the writer has to keep making sure everyone speaks every few lines so you don't forget they're in there. 
but you actually do the same thing with the music and so you actually know people are in in the location because of the music because that's giving you the clue and in fact you, you don't need some of the characters to speak as often because of the way you've done your music to actually let you know that, that who's who's in the room who's present um yeah that, that that approach works for a lot of stuff but you know particularly lone centurion it's very 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 character driven you know lancelot in that second box was just brilliant wasn't it uh, you know <laughs> and to he had, to he had... totally over the top can i say <laughs> and, and it, it, it did take to get used to but in the end i was just laughing so much like once i realized there's nothing serious about this character at all he's just an absolute comedy character um yeah, yeah i enjoyed it a lot more that scene in the swamp just gets me every time I listen to it, <laughs> where he falls into the mud, yeah. Um, but no, no, it was funny because Lancelot's theme was just his name, uh, in rhythm rhythmically, you know, Lancelot, you know. Um, so whenever you heard that, you, yeah, you knew he was there. Um, there's a few themes in actually The Lone Centurion that kind of aren't just character themes. Um, there's uh, there's a theme whenever he's um, dealing with the Pandorica. Like if he's, if he's having some sort of emotional outpouring towards the Pandorica or someone who... Um, it's like a female in his life. There is a theme yep. for that. And then there's, um, obviously there's character like motifs and things, um, which are more sort of short motifs than actual full-blown themes. I was so so happy when, uh, when, I, when I was offered that because it's really the first time I've been able to really take something, take an IP and run with it. From scratch. Um, yeah, from scratch. There's no, there's no, Working on Warmaster is great, but there's already a there's, a there's a really amazing theme written, and there's also a, a brilliant theme written um, from Telly as well, which is obviously the simplest, you know, Four Knox theme, and then you've got Yoa Morris's amazing theme as well. So, working in that in those constraints is brilliant, but actually being able to take a new property and you know make it how I want to make it was just totally awesome. Um, yeah, because it really it really allowed me to really put everything that everything of me everything i think of as you know, my kind of identity into it um and you know with uh rory's character being about the same age as me we probably would have played sort of the same video games we probably would have read the same books and seen the same films so actually it was quite fitting you know because a lot of my um influences come from back in the 90s uh, and into the noughties really we're running a bit like a prog tune here um because you got to the part where Ken had said, uh, have you decided to audition, uh, have you ever tried auditioning for Big Finish? Um, what happened then? You um, approached Big Finish? Yep, so um, Nick was in the studio, uh, so I just said, can I audition? And he said, yes. Um, uh, he sent me the files. Um, I did the audition, uh, got, got the, uh, waited a bit, got the, um, got the go ahead. I think so was that a I matter of just getting dialogue and putting some sound design and music to it exactly yeah just have it can you do it it, it was they use they've used the same audition files for i think they've used the same audition files for about 10 or 15 years um so yeah it was really great hearing those uh and working on it for, working on something for the first time really but once we got the part once once, once the kind of i got the go ahead to start working for big finish first thing i did was a short trip um called i believe it was called Black Dog, was that? That was it, yeah, yeah. Um, with Louise Jameson, uh, who's obviously a, a wonderful and amazing. Um, and that was with, I was working with Lisa on that. Um, and then Lisa, I was working with Lisa Bauman on that, um, which, is, which is really nice. And she gave me sort of 
a lot of encouragement actually early on saying this is great this is great this is great let's change this bit and this bit um which looking back now was definitely you know she's really she's really kind of protecting my kind of you know how, how good i try not to discourage me is what i'm trying to say she's trying not to discourage me. yeah and then after that i worked on um my first uh full length uh audio dramas i think that was countermeasures it was it was actually the new countermeasures when the countermeasures got let it was a special yeah. single one-off one wasn't it and yeah then you went to the called... box set after that it was who killed yeah, toby yeah. kinsella yeah 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 and yeah that was that was a really amazing intro to sound design and i uh, i remember feeling very um sort of you know job felt so huge <laughs> you know it was, i was sort of blown over by it but i you know put the time in and got it done um and that was absolutely a a massive learning experience and ken being the really you know detailed bloke he is he's, he's a really fantastic fantastic director really set me straight on a lot of things um and i have a lot to be thankful to ken for as well you know he's a he's a brilliant bloke um, did you research remembrance of the daleks for that or, or were they more interested in the 70s themes so you didn't have to worry so much um there wasn't really any i think if i recall the stories weren't based around um anything to do with remembrance if i recall i don't really recall Apart from quite the characters, a few. that's all well the characters yeah yeah <laughs> um but no it was most of the most of the um uh research i had to do was you know things like what the telephone sound like in the 70s and sirens and you know i had to look at some old telly and um listen to what engines would have sounded like in that era of telly because i think the the whole um uh sort of vibe they were going for was this sort of itv um format which which was cool uh, but for me that it just most of it went right over my head and i had to really delve deep into the <laughs> figuring out what stuff's supposed to sound like but so how do you how do you find that how do you find what a telephone sounded like in 1972 well you just watch enough telly and <laughs> right. you'll eventually find one yeah it, it, they had a particular sound and you can't you can't make that up really with you know a conventional telephone you'd see today um it has to sound right uh, and and i keep you know car engines as well you know, in my mind everyone was driving around in a datsun so i found a recording of a datsun engine and just used that for all of my car sounds um <laughs> yeah and then it was it was other stuff as well like um we had a datsun uh, yeah, yeah yeah i had a datsun too <laughs> I think we all had Datsuns at some point. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they were kind of hard to have, weren't they? Um, uh, so that was a big part of it, and then it was, you know, what what traffic, you know, for sounds for soundscapes, you'd have to basically start from blank essentially, because you know you, you don't, we don't have any recordings of, of sort of wild tracks of cities from back then, and I don't really know what they would have sounded like, um, so I had to make that bit up, which was quite a task, you know, with reverbs and car engines and horns and horns that's another thing car engine horns are just different from back then as well uh, so that all has to be right to put you in the right place because if you hear a modern car horn in, this, uh, in a show from the 70s it's just going to totally throw you off um so you're kind of maybe i'm drawing a, a you know a, quite a big picture of the challenge that that was <laughs> My, you know, really so so you're making the sounds right from scratch no i'm i'm buying samples so I'm buying samples of like um, 
you know, Sterling, you know, I think they're, they're, they're old, whatever the old sirens are called, and I'm buying samples of the old horns from cards that are still around. Um, so I'm buying samples of those small bits, but when it actually comes to making the soundscapes, I'm making those using a whole plethora of stuff I bought, essentially, um, and bedding it in. So I, in, a, in a sense, I think I, I, you could say I'm building it from scratch, but I'm doing what any sound designer does, which is take a bunch of recordings and buy a load of samples and, you know, place them all together. Do you find you're able to reuse your, having done the countermeasures, which is 1970s, the dollhouse with Torchwood you did later is also 70s, but a different country. Were you able right. to, were you able to steal from the two, or is LA much too different a sound than London in the 70s? Yeah, looking back on Torchwood, but particularly that one, the doll's house, I think that had a different sort of more of a glamour style to it. So I think the actual details, like what things are supposed to sound like, um, maybe didn't matter quite so much. The thing about countermeasures is that it was um, it was kind of one of those jobs that had to be kind of sound almost real. Gritty. Yeah. It, it was the professionals, wasn't it? It was professional sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but whereas I think Torchwood doll's house was uh, a bit more of a kind of Charlie's Angels, lots of bright colours. You know, stars floating across the screen. So I think the the um, it wasn't quite as important to kind of nail that than it was to do countermeasures, in my opinion. So you've worked through various ranges: um, Warmaster, Torchwood, um, Fifth Doctor, uh, which I, I really like that uh, that trilogy there, the the Mark the Mark arc that we like to call call it. Um, that was I really really enjoy that trilogy a lot. Um, so it was good you came back. I, on the I don't know resort. why John Dorney has to keep killing off all the male companions, though. Can I just keep saying why? It's just what he does. It's what he does. Uh, oh, it's a male companion. I'll kill him. John Dorney, what are you doing? Anyhow, um, you, you worked on Russell T Davies' Dark Season as well. So, um, how does that compare doing sound for a novel reading? Because, as you said earlier, you said that audio is becoming more and more popular. And I think more and more people, not just Big Finish, but well, that's what Big Finish does. But even normal audiobooks are being more enhanced these days uh, and more efforts going into them than ever before. So um, how does that work in comparison to full audio? Yeah, so the book readings, one of my favourite things to work on is, is narrated audiobooks um, for the simple reason that when you're working with just a single narrator, you know, there's really only, there's no other stuff going on. You're just, you're just scoring what's, what's scoring or sound designing what they're saying. Um, and it's a really nice sort of oiled down picture you get, um, you know, working on things like the short trip range, you know, sort of stories like A Full Life or um, uh, uh, what other short trips for them. I listened to one just yesterday, completely randomly, uh, didn't even realise it was you until I looked it up. It was um, the ingenious gentleman Adric of Alzarius. Uh, yeah, I thought that was very, very cool short trip. It was beautiful. And Matthew Waterhouse just blows me away with his uh, performance. I really rate Matthew Waterhouse. He's amazing. Um, yeah, but where that sort of sits, and particularly with Dark Season, um, uh, because you're working with just the one narrator, you've got to basically be almost a bit more literal. But that's nice because there's not loads of stuff being told to you already. So I, f I feel like you have more of a hand in actually setting the setting the scene if you understand um whereas if you have we have a when you have a full cast audio drama there's sound design there's you know, five or six actors um they're doing a lot of the work for you but when it's just narration 
it's really down to the composer and the sound designer to really flesh out what's going on, you know. Um, and the nice thing about um, the, you know, narrating and the narrative is that um, it's, if you have a good reader, it really adds to it. And if you just employ, you know, one of the great things about working on, uh, you know, full life and Ingenious Gentleman, Andrew Alzaris is, is Matthew Waterhouse is an amazing reader. Um, and he's, he really, you have to work kind of with the actor a lot more. And it's a very kind of intimate um, experience as opposed to working on full cast. But yeah, Dark Season was fun. It was really great. Um, and the reason it was, it was fun is because it's, it's from a time on telly in about the 90s and the music for it is just totally wild. I had to basically go back and recreate that sound within what I've got. Um, and I looked at what the original composer was doing. I found the synths he was using um, and recreated his what he was essentially putting forward. And it's a lot of kind of um, sequence synthesizers, um, uh, alien sounding, kind of coming off the back of the radiophonic workshop stuff, very kind of alien sounding synthesizer, you have know, lots of high pass filtering. Um, and yeah, so that was a lot of fun to come up with. And I had to do a, um, uh, a retake on the theme. So the theme here on the, on the, on the, on the set isn't the original, but it is the original notes and everything, but it's, it's subtly different and it's, but it's in that style. And I, yeah, I was really proud of that theme. I'm obviously working on anything Russell's, Russell and Scott are involved with. Um, is, is brilliant as well. Yeah, Russell's prose really came back back then as well, in my opinion. Um, it was it was a it, it was a it was nice to kind of be in that same sort of um, same sort of kind of literary zone to what you know what's going on in telly with Doctor Who. That would have been thrilling for you too, because Russell's behind your Doctor, isn't he? He is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, he's behind a lot of things, honestly. Um, <laughs> We have a lot to thank him for, I think. Mm. Uh, and yeah, it kind of. And then when we, we kind of ended up doing Hodiak not long afterwards, Mind of the Hodiak, which was obviously his first ever Doctor Who script, um, his pitch to um, BBC Studios at the time, uh, that was much the same experience. It was just totally, you know, um, awe inspiring work, really, in my opinion. Um, well, yeah. Since you've brought since you've brought Mind of the Hodiac up, it was actually that score that made me reach out to you in the first place a few months back. And it like like Philip said, he sometimes skips the music suites. Well, this one, I made a point of sitting down and listening to the music suite because it was touching me throughout the story. It wasn't it, it wasn't that I just started listening to it by accident and went, oh, this is good. No, I, I actually had a cup of coffee next to me. I closed my eyes, had no other distractions, just let it flow over me. It was, I think it is the score of at least this year, I can tell you that. <laughs> um, wow. It's it's a beautiful piece. And what's fascinating about this is it's not, it's not 80s, right? So the Lost Stories often try to go and recreate the 80s era. But this is slightly different in as much as, yes, it's Russell T Davies, um, set in the 80s so it's like almost like it struck me as like a hybrid of the 80s with the six dollar six doctor and mel but also incorporating the orchestral sounds of russell t davies doctor who 
So bringing them together to make this piece, was that something that you consciously decided to do or were asked to do? Yeah, well, yeah, well, when, when I sat down with, um, when Scott essentially told me what the brief was, um, it was, you know, 80s and Marigold. Yes, um, yeah. that's what I got. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was, uh, so there were things like themes happening, um, but not quite as in your face as stuff like, you know, Lone Centurion where, where the, the character has a theme and then the character, you know, um, that, that score for me was, it was, it was, it was important for it to feel very emotional. It felt, and to really kind of nail home what was actually happening, you know, um, particularly, you know, the thing that really stuck out to me about that drama was uh, the character Nan, the character Nan, uh, who had that wonderful chat with Amy early on in disc one. She was just telling her a story about all of the different planets that she'd been to, but not really indicating that she was an alien at all. For me, that those those two scenes really uh, showed the scope of what was going on and the kind of beauty of that creature, if you know what I mean, um, or, or it, it, its potential to be beautiful, if you, if you understand. So that those two scenes for me really kind of nailed home what the score's supposed to sound like, because. Um, you know, there's. I've always, I always try and think about the link between the spoken word, you know, whether it's poetry or or, or verse or, or just a story, and music. And I try and always think about how I would say or how I would sing, uh, sing certain lines. Um, so to me, hearing that sort of sparking dialogue really kind of sparked off the whole entire thing for me. Um, those two characters were sort of the heart of that family, weren't they? You know, we're used to Russell, Russell, um, uh, in Russell T. Davies' work now, we're used to seeing the middle class family in the centre of the story. Um, but this was the first time it had ever happened. You know, and I really wanted to kind of show the love that that family had, despite the fact they were going through hard times. And I wanted to kind of convey it in a way that was, you know, particularly when it, when it eventually finishes in a way that was really sort of beautiful and expressive you know it was a real absolute honor to be able to be that expressive and really actually get that deep into the story and play around with stuff particularly when russell's written you know um and the pressure was on i'll tell you that yeah you know, i poured everything into that school um <laughs> if, you, if you see me in january you see the very you know black rings around my eyes and very tired sort of man. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, absolutely. I think I spent three, about three, three weeks on the first episode, just getting it right. Um, and just making sure it, it was feeling good. Um, and that project obviously with um, Emily and Scott, Emily Cook and Scott Hancock, we all just pulled everything into it. We absolutely loved it. Um, and it was just one of those stories where we really, um, met on the same page um you know we, scott and i work together a lot anyway but and we're always on the same page but we really kind of understood the importance of that particular story and where it sat in in relation to everything that's come after it um so we, you know we wanted to give it a good foundation um and of course you know i'm super proud of that school um i so you know, should be 
listening back to it, I just think, you know, how did I even write that? <laughs> Was that even me? You know, but what, when you're in that kind of musical coma, that com the composer's coma, you know, that kind of sort of half awake dreamlike dream state, you know, some of the stuff that comes out is more from your subconscious than it is from any conscious, conscious idea you've had. Um, so, yeah, and when you're that deep in the kind of think tank, it's kind of hard to come out, you know, you get to the other end of the job and, you know, go, oh, that, oh, that's done. And then two weeks later, you listen to it and think, oh my gosh. <laughs> and I was so happy to hear, to see such a, a warm response about the, the music as well. I was uh, from, from the general fans on the internet, you know, um, it was really lovely to, to hear all the lovely words um, spoken about the school and, and the story. Um, yeah, super proud of that one. So when you say the brief was 80s but Murray Gold, was there any more direction than that or that was that was it and you were given free reign? It's given free reign, yeah, that was it. And it was literally a case of, you know, here you go. <laughs> I tried, you know, Scott and I have got, um, Scott is, uh, Scott and I have been working together for so long now that um, he knows what I'm going to do already. Um, so he's got a kind of we have a kind of mutual trust when it comes to this sort of thing that he we know that one person isn't going to mess it up and if if we do we say it but um yeah no he i'm just very grateful to be able to have that sort of level of trust when i'm working with someone you know the amount of directors you work with and they want to have um you know micromanage stuff there's none of that it's just here you go yeah don't mess it up <laughs> i trust you to do a good job and yeah it was as I said, the pressure was on. It was a, it, was te it could have been a, well, it was really um, a very important moment in particularly my development uh, as a composer. Um, uh, I can think of a few times over the years where it's been crunch time and I've had to really put the time, put the effort in. Um, and Hodiak was definitely one of those. Uh, and I really feel like the music that's coming out is, is better for it. You know, stuff I'm working on now is better because I worked on the Hodiac. Um, and then it's really makes me happy to carry on that legacy. You know? Did Russell T. Davis have a pass of it before it was approved? I mean, he's, yeah, he liked... yeah, he had a little. Okay, yeah. I know he likes to be very hands-on. Yeah. So, so did he get notes from Russell? Uh, we got a couple of notes on the sound effects. I have a, I got no notes on the music, so I can only hope, he, I can only expect that he liked it. Um, you know, Imagine, you know, <laughs> notes from Rusty um, Davis. Well done. Oh God, yeah, <laughs> yeah. There, there was a, there was, yeah. There was, I think there's one or two sound effects notes, and there's a scene that was flipped over, but otherwise there wasn't anything else, which is really amazing. You know. Now I, I'm, I'm not sure. Have I heard that Murray Gold's coming back, or is that just a rumor that's going around? Didn't see it's an it's a rumor. It, it hasn't been, it hasn't been announced. <laughs> we don't know. Okay, we have no idea. But, but Sega Nakanola has. Just, I suspect we'll go, we'll go back to more musical scores again because that's what Russell likes. You never know, Rob. You might get the call. Well, maybe. Could you imagine? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. But... <laughs> you thought that Hodiak was uh, pressure. <laughs> yeah, I, know. I probably, I probably aged 10 years. Maybe next see me. If that, came, <laughs> if that came around, oh, my God. Yeah. Um, but honestly, I, I'm... I'd be very surprised if it wasn't Murray, because I think Murray works on a lot of stuff with, with Russell. But um, no, 
if he wants me to come do it, I'll obviously more than happily come and work on <laughs> Just just an episode. Just, I'll just take do, do one episode a season. Yeah, sure. What, whatever, whatever he wants. I'll, I'll do anything. I'll record just some hi-hat if he wants. <laughs> well, the, the classic series mixed up the composers, so we can oh, we wow, can start yeah. that start that again. Yeah, well, mixed it up a bit, but yeah. And who knows a what's coming? Bit, yeah. From this, who knows what's coming from his sort of extended unit, whatever, whatever he's going to, you know, do next. Mm. Um, yeah, we'll see. Be very excited to see. I'm obviously I love shooting as, as a doctor as well. It's going to be amazing. It will be. Lots of exciting things, but no matter what happens on TV, I am a die-hard audio fan, and uh, I am still amazed after listening to this stuff for decades now that it's the quality is still it's still there and they've got uh you know new people like yourself who you've been there what seven years now working for the yeah. for the company um seven still comes still coming through with this great quality stuff and uh keeping me keeping me thoroughly entertained and um the the, the thing when the, the the new series originally came back i was worried that because I was so into Big Finish at the time, I didn't want Big Finish to end, and I thought that might have been it, but it carried on. So let's hope it keeps going. Now, of course, you are doing a film score at the moment for Big Finish, aren't you? Because Big Finish has a movie coming out. you want to tell us a bit about that, and also how it's different? Well, they have a short film coming out, um, which is uh, obviously the Dorian Gray um, thing happening, because obviously it's, um, I think it's... 60th anniversary of Dorian Gray? No, ten, well, ten, year, 10 years of Dorian Gray. 10 years of Dorian Gray, finished. Finished, that was it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we've got a vinyl release uh, and we're having this short film. Uh, and uh, what I can tell you about the short film, um, honestly, isn't very much, but I can tell you that the score is going to be um, quite, very much like Dorian Gray on audio, but on telly. Um, uh, and I'm looking at players who have played in a few things um, television related recently to come and play on it and um, we'll see um the vinyl as well was is, is really great um obviously working on working on vinyl is is, is a completely different ball game uh yeah but the, yeah the, the the what can i actually tell you about the short film that isn't gonna get an angry email um yeah big, big finish Actually, well, there, there has been there have been some shots actually released on YouTube. I know I know I've watched some scenes being filmed, and Vlahos mm. um, being interviewed. So you've seen some stuff there. But in terms of the music score, how is it different scoring for a film to an audio? Yeah. So with audio, um, you, you have the kind of chance to really dig into um, the narrative a lot more, and you can be a lot more expressive and um, kind of score every small intricacy tell you like you have to basically kind of wash it almost with music as opposed to um you know with audio where you've got a you know essentially it's almost like a difference it's like embroidery um you know scoring audio drama but where i sort of consider scoring for film um for starters you have to be quite visually inclined so you have to see what's going on and use that information in your score uh, whereas obviously with audio you're only listening um, but it does mean you can kind of do less because you've got, you're looking at something, you're hearing something. The music then has to do more with less space, essentially. So you're using, uh, you know, telescores these days are um, very sort of soundscape based. There's not not much in the way of melody, that, not that much in the way of melody. Um, if you go back a few years, obviously it's different, but I want to try and inject some more of that melodic aspect into uh, into this short film. 
because um, I think you know Dorian Gray is such a great, interesting character that he kind of deserves um, his own sort of melodic story as well as um, his story of what's going on, on screen. Um, and you know he's, he's he's quite a vulnerable character as well. So there's a lot of a lot of space to really deliver something that's going to feel good as well as you know just going to enhance what's happening on screen um yeah i've got high hopes for that that's going to be awesome uh but i'm i'm working on it sort of now in tandem with some warmaster stuff and it's yeah it's sounding really good and it's looking really good as well um i'm working with um a new director to me and i think fairly new to big finish as well a guy called david amani um he's a lovely bloke and we we've been talking and we've got a lot of the same uh same uh influences uh, like he really loves 80s rock music and things like Journey and I really like classical um, classic rock music and classical music and we sort of meet in the middle and we're both huge Star Wars fans and John Williams fans so he's very much uh, of, of a sort that likes melody and theme um, very similar to things like The Lone Centurion or you know um, uh, yeah and so it's, think of the score as going to be kind of like thematic like The Lone Centurion was but emotional like emotional in a way that Hodiak was but dark. <laughs> um, it's going to be quite dark, and there's some interest. There's some interesting characters in it as well, um, and some people you probably recognise. You, know, you recognise their face from headshots and shots of shots of recording, but you'll, you you won't recognise. Some, maybe some people you won't recognise until you hear them as well. So you're working on a vinyl edition as well. Yep. So we did a um, a couple of short stories um, for vinyl, and that's um, I. With vinyl, yeah, it's the stories are capped to the length that, that vinyl can be on, so they're sort of half an hour in length, sort of twenty minutes, half an hour, um, and yeah, it's a really nice narrated style that I'm, I, I really like scoring again. Um, so there's a lot of kind of interlinked um, score with the words, essentially. So that's 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 really great. I also use some. Um, uh, I got the old classical guitar out for that one as well. Um, I particularly um, one of the one of the stories. Uh, there's a lot of classical guitar over it because I studied a little bit of classical guitar and things like flamenco um, quite a few years ago. So I just grabbed that and put some of that in. Um, yeah, and then some quite sort of fusion between sort of that classical guitar sound with classical guitar sound with sort of orchestra. The soundscape and yeah, it makes quite a interesting score, and I'm really, I'm really looking forward to hearing it on vinyl as well because I have no idea what that's going to be like because I've obviously never worked on, having not worked on vinyl before, it's going to be a bit of an experience putting putting, putting the needle down on that, hearing my music coming out. So you haven't mis mixed it specifically for vinyl; it's just getting pressed. So I have, yes. So there, there is a vinyl mix and a digital mix. I believe that, yeah. I think, yeah. So there's a digital release of it coming out as well. So on the vinyl mix, I've basically um, made it sound like vinyl. And on the digital mix, sorry, on the vinyl mix, I've made it sound clean. So the vinyl makes it sound like vinyl, if that makes sense. And on, on the digital mix, I've put the vinyl sounds back in and EQ'd it slightly differently. So it sounds like an old wax record. So the, so the, so the, the digital version is going to sound like it's vinyl? Yeah, the digital version is going to sound like it's vinyl, even down to the, the vinyl scrapes at the end when the, as the needle gets dropped off. Oh, fantastic. Okay. Yeah, that's gonna be good. Yeah, I, I, 
I really can't wait for you to hear that. That's going to be excellent. Um, yeah, I sort of put the idea to Scott at the beginning. and said, do we, do we need two different versions of it for, for physical and digital release? And we thought, well, yeah, that'd be great. Um, and there's also lots of sort of background sound effects as well going on um, while the narration's happening. Uh, so, yeah, hopefully they come across on vinyl. I, 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 I'm really, yeah, really interested in hearing what that's going to sound like. Cause obviously, no, I, I ask you about the, the vinyl mix because a lot of bands, particularly modern prog bands, they'll release something on CD and they'll do a vinyl mix. And there's there's a couple of bands in particular who the vinyl experience is completely different to listening to it on a CD. It's amazing how different it is. And so, that yeah, that's why I was curious about this. May may not be so noticeable being a, a short story because it's not, not so thick with sound. But, um, yeah, certainly, certainly the vinyl experience is a different one for me at times. Yeah, well, what I've heard from Scott already is apparently that the test pressing sound really good. So, uh, well, yeah, he's got he's had the thumbs up from him. So, yeah, and I think I think they've been printed already, and I'm fairly certain there's some signing. Alex is signing some of them as well, um, but we'll, uh, we'll we'll see about that. Um, yeah, no, it's been totally. Is I think the, there's two hours, two hour long, two half hour long stories to make a, um, uh, and the. Yeah, I'm trying to think what else I can say without. Yeah, there's no. Yeah, I think we're just gonna have to wait, wait and see with that before no, I give it. Okay. Surprises are good. I, mean, I think you've been working with Hugh Skinner a lot though recently, haven't you? He's been he's an awful lot. I love Hugh. He's absolutely amazing. Yeah, he's he's obviously was brilliant as Lance a lot, but yeah, as as Toby, he's he's also amazing. Um, uh, and I love his the way he delivers his lines and and the tone of his voice really suits audio beautifully. Um, yeah, it's lovely when you find an actor that can do both on screen and in the audio as well. He's really, really talented bloke. Um, I'm always very happy when I see his name on the credits. So what are you dreaming of for the future? What are, what's your hopes and dreams for where do you want to go? I really want to get into film scoring um, and, and telly scoring you know, on IPs that I'm familiar with. Um, or stuff that I have no idea about. Um, I'm, really, all I'm looking for is a challenge, and um, I every job is a challenge, really. So I'm really just looking to carry on that process of learning and process of experiencing, you know, literary awesomeness. Um, but no, my my I do have a real need to, or want to get into telescoring, scoring, um, episodic telescore. Um, that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, We'll see about that. Well, there might be something on the horizon. Who knows? Um, and hopefully, this uh, short film will open some doors um, for that. Well, Big Finish has a film composer uh, that does work for them, so you can always get into Joe's ear. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Joe's lovely. I've emailed him a few times, and he's always uh, very happy to talk. Um, I've watched his podcast before uh, coming on here. Actually, it was really interesting to listen. To finish off, could I just reiterate once again what a magnificent score Mind of the Hodiac was. Uh, if this is uh, a sign of things to come, uh, there are some great, great things to come. So uh, so thanks very much for, for joining us today, Rob. Thanks, Dwayne. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, mate. A and prog on. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> there was panic in the parlour and howling in the hall. Doctor... Oh! From Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who, 
mind of the Hodiac. The other is out there, actively aware. She knows that I am searching and is afraid. She's out there, somewhere in the wide worlds. Not again! Not again! Put it all down, whatever you are. Why? Why do you keep doing this to us? This institute is dedicated to research in the field of psychic science. The power granted to the human mind, taking us one step closer to the angels. Your mind, his mind, his mind in your mind. Two minds, one mind. Something's checking coordinates! What's happening? Why are you doing this? It's gone. Whatever it was, it's it's gone. But couldn't you feel it? The strength of it? A mind, a magnificent mind. Is that it? It's over! No. It is far from over. The battle lines have been drawn. We march upon the earth. Big finish for the love of stories. What a fascinating chat with Rob Harvey, Philip. Yes, um, what an amazing man. I love what he's doing and I'm looking forward to seeing what comes in the future. So thanks very much, Rob. We, uh, it, it was a privilege chatting to you about these things and yeah. Keep making us cry with those beautiful scores. We love them. All right, Philip, that just leaves us to uh, recommend something for this episode. And uh, I think I might... No, I can't do that. It's your turn. Oh, really? Yes, really. Uh, Let me go first. Don't you know this by now? I know. Tell me about that. I'm going to recommend an old Torchwood show, which I can't remember whether we talked about on air or afterwards with Rob. Um, but anyhow, Rob and us talked about it. There's some stuff we maybe cut out. Um, called The Dollhouse. So it's released number 14. Um, it is just... So it's got none of the regulars in it at all. It's it's set in America, in LA, in the 70s. It's a pastiche of Charlie's Angels. It even has the Charlie's Angels beginning, you know. Once, once in a the city, there was three girls. So the first one. And, and so it does exactly the same as Charlie's Angels does. Um, and the whole show is very tongue-in-cheek, but it's still got that whole Torchwood, aliens in the background, discovering um, what's going on. It's it's by um, Juno Dawson, um, so it's it's not one of the normal Torchwood writers, and I'm not sure. It's the only other thing she's written. Juno wrote Redacted. Really? Hmm. Okay. There you there go. There you go. Um, so the only other thing she's written for, for Big Finish was one of the episodes in Aliens Among Us. Um, so there, okay, well, I didn't know she did Redacted, which I must admit I haven't listened to, but I've heard things about it. Um, so yeah, if you're into Torchwood, it's one of the sidestepping ones, as I said, none of the regular cast, and I suspect lots of people probably didn't buy it, but if you love the Charlie's Angels, the 70s, um, that sort of glam rock feel, this is a a great episode to really get, get your teeth into and enjoy. Um, I love the music in it, I love what Rob's done. Um, because he's done the he's done the sound design and music for it, um, and I think you'll really enjoy it. So that's my suggestion. 
What about you, um, Dwayne? What are you going to recommend? Yeah, Dwayne. Dwayne's a name. Sorry, what you I forgot say? me for a moment. You just went, um, Dwayne. No, I see, actually, you know, what, I, so I just looked up and just realised that actually, um, he's only actually done the sound design. Rob Lewis did the sound design for this music. It was actually by Blair Mouse and Steve Wright. Okay, so, so I should just correct myself there because, yeah. But anyhow, it's a great story, worth listening to. Excellent. Right, I'm going to recommend a radio play from the BBC, which I stumbled across. Uh, it's it was originally broadcast on BBC Four, and it is a radio version of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And now earlier in the episode, we were talking about music, and one of my biggest cinematic musical influences would have to be the soundtrack to Blade Runner by Vangelis. So. And Blade Runner is actually my favourite film. Uh, and so I stumbled across... I can't even work out how I stumbled across it uh, because it's not available to purchase anywhere and I stumbled across it on YouTube. So it's a two-hour uh, audio adaptation and it stars James Purefoy and Jessica Rain. So Jessica Rain, of course, played Verity Lambert in Adventure in Time and Space. So Jessica's playing the same character that Sean Young played in the movie. But this would be a much more... Li I haven't heard it all yet. I've only started listening to it. But it would be a much more literal to the book uh, rendition. And the book is very different to the movie Blade Runner. So um, I'm going to recommend that and throw a link in uh, for anyone who wants to check it out. Just for a bit of a bit of a different version of that yeah, particular I mean, story. I do love the book. I mean, it's a, well, short, it's really just a short story. It's a fascinating little short story. And it's not I, a short story. It's not a whole... You wouldn't, it's, a, it's a novel. It's not that long, though, is it? Well, it's a novel. Okay. A couple, uh, couple of hundred pages. Okay. I, I don't remember it being that long, but it was, it was many, many years ago. I, I read it soon after Blade Runner came out hmm. and then thought I, I, they're nothing the same, but I could see where the, some of the concepts came from. Yeah. So that's my recommendation for this week. Thank you for yours, Philip. Thank you for being here as well. It's always a pleasure to be in your company. Oh, ditto, Dwayne, ditto. <laughs> All right, we'll catch you all next time, guys. See you, everyone. This has been The Sirens of Audio, episode 124. Get with the program. With our guests, Rob Harvey, and your hosts, Philip Edney and Dwayne Bunny. Original theme music composed by Joe Kramer. Background music throughout the episode by Rob Harvey. Our website is sirensofaudio.com and you can email us at sirensofaudio at gmail.com or contact us via any one of our socials. Thanks for listening, audiophiles. We'll hear you next time.